Good morning, Sun River Church. How we doing? Josh, thank you. Appreciate you being here this morning. Give me a hand. And Chris Detner ran out. He was in the drum case. If you don't know, he is on our staff. He helps to coordinate a lot of the band members. For several years, he played in different bands at different churches around Sacramento. So he's got a network, and we're capitalizing on his ability to network right now as we look to fill some spots in the worship and music department. So good to be back. How's everybody doing? Thank you for allowing Heidi and I to uh, jet away for a surprise weekend in Denver, Colorado. It's been over 15 years. I'll show you a couple videos. If you don't have Facebook, you didn't see them. If you did have Facebook, if you do have Facebook, Heidi posted these. This first video, they're just going to roll through them. We showed up at Heidi's sister, her house first. Nobody knew we were coming. Again, it was over 15 years. I think it's going to play. You can just play it while I talk, maybe. This is uh, her older sister. What? What are you doing? Nobody knew we were coming, so it was a fun surprise to just show up. We went to Heidi's house next, where her dad was uh, doing somebody's hair. You have got to be kidding me. You have got to be kidding me. He saw me with the camera. And by his own admission, as soon as he saw the camera, he used language that was appropriate. <laughs> then Heidi's mom comes home from the grocery store, and Heidi's hiding. She doesn't see Heidi. We quickened the video, but for at least 15 seconds. And then she turns around and is surprised. It's out of context. It's, we haven't been there in such a long time. They typically come out here, or we'll go to Minnesota, or see them in other places, And then um, Sunday morning, we left early in the morning, drove south about five and a half hours to Walsh, Colorado. It's a few miles from Kansas, a few miles from Texas, a few miles from everywhere else, in the middle of nowhere. Felt like I was at Hume Lake again because we had no cell signal in this little town that maybe you don't know, John Burson grew up in this church and in this town. You're kidding me. My dad was at the front door greeting people. Good night. And then my mom was in the front row. Church was just getting ready to start. So we were, Heidi wanted us to come a little late and right in the middle of like the sermon show up. But you guys are playing hooky from church and the video shuts off. And then for about 15, 20 minutes, my mom sat there in the front row and into the message, just tearing up and crying. It was a good trip. So just want to thank you for that. Chris, leadership team, great job last week. So thankful for what God is doing here at Sun River Church, and I'm just grateful to be a part of it. Grab your Bibles and go to Titus chapter 3. It is one of my hopes, it is one of my prayers, that you would become a creature of God's Word. I want to... Today, I've been doing this. You'll notice we do the public reading of scripture, we preach from God's word. This isn't just my philosophies of life, it's not my education coming through. I'm bringing in my thoughts and illustrations, but really, we want to be a people who are centered on the word of God. The word of God is our measure, it's our authority. 
I want to encourage you and challenge you if you do not have a Bible to get one. It's the most important book you could ever read. Whether you're seeking, whether you're stumbling, or whether you're sold out for God. The Bible is inspired by God and is profitable for everything in life. This is not the kind of church where I'm going to preach and then you just believe. Don't be that type of follower of Jesus Christ. Vern, you got people saying amen. Way to go. It's coming. We're getting there. I want you to see God yourself. I want you to open it up. I want to encourage you, even as I'm getting older and kind of becoming old school, to get a physical copy of a paper Bible. Use a pen and outline and mark. I want you to see the words that I'm preaching. I want you to study them. I want you to believe them by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by my teaching or preaching. And you won't be able to judge or discern without your own Bible, without spending time in God's word. And those of you who know me and have been around for a while know there is a drum that I am never going to stop beating. The gospel of Jesus Christ recorded in his word. I remember being in Africa and there was a drum beating right outside the church. And I asked one of the pastors at Kampala Baptist, what is that? And, it's, and he goes, that's the drum of the gospel. That stuck with me. I ever stop preaching the gospel from God's word, you, congregation, members of Son River Church, should go to the leadership and ask, what in the world is going on? It's the center of the Christian life. It's the center of the Bible. Last week, we saw this in Titus chapter 2, when Chris unpacked these verses, the grace of God has appeared, salvation. Great is God, our, our God and Savior, who gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession. Ready, zealous to do good works. Paul tells Timothy these words to say to the church, and he says, declare these things, exhort them, rebuke with all authority, not on his own merit, not on his own wisdom, not on his own understanding, but from God's inspired word. And the whole counsel of God, not just one verse. We are going to beat this drum. I want you to become a creature of God's word. Paul is going to move from how the entrusted follower of Jesus Christ lives within the church into chapter 3, how the entrusted follower of Jesus Christ lives in society. You're probably not ready for this sermon because I'm not ready to give it, but here it comes. It's not my words. This is the inspired word of God through Paul to Titus. How you and I, if you are a follower of Jesus, are supposed to live in the culture and in the society we dwell. And so here is the question that drives the whole sermon this morning. Are you 
living your life as a visual reminder of who God is and what he has done. Are you living your life for yourself, your rights, your freedom, your will, or are you as living your life as a visual reminder of who God is and what he has done? This, my friends, brothers and sisters in Christ who are following Jesus, is the mission of the church, period. There's no other mission. There's no other way to do it. We are to live our lives in such a way that we are light to lost people and so they come to the saving knowledge of Jesus and they are rescued from their sin, from their depravity. This is the mission of the church. And the gospel is the drum that beats this mission every step of the way. I haven't preached for a week, so I'm like amped up. You haven't noticed. Today's outline in eight verses is really simple. Paul is going to admonish Titus to remind followers of Jesus on the island of Crete of four major visual marks of a Christian life. Our duty as Christians in verse one and two. Our former disorder of unbelief and sin. Our deliverance through Jesus Christ and our desire to an unbelieving lost world. So grab your Bibles and let's start in verse one of Titus chapter three, where he's going to remind us God himself through Paul is going to remind us of our duties, seven specific duties as followers of Jesus Christ. Paul says to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Uh Uh-oh. To be obedient, to be ready to do every good work in the Greek language. What Paul is saying is put them in mind to be subject to be subject to the principles and powers, to obey the magistrates, that's the exact word, the magistrates, and to be ready for every good work. I'm not diverting from what I've said at the beginning that in the pulpit preaching, we are not going to do political agendas. This doesn't leave room for us to start talking about political ventures. That's not the point of this. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to preach what's right in God's eyes based on God's word. He says, submit to rulers and authorities. So let's talk about that. Just like today, 2,000 years ago, politics, government was dividing the church. It's cooking with jet fuel now all across the country and the world. I mean, you name a party and you're out. Can't be Christian. One man sits 
as the ruler and governor of a specific country in a supreme spot, the most powerful man on the planet. Half the country loves him, half the country hates him, and it creeps into the church. Listen, you can't even read the history books and find one political leader in a government beginning of time to today that was not in some way, shape, or form corrupt, morally bankrupt, tyrannical, cruel, oppressive, murderous, unjust, sexually immoral, sadistic. They're all corrupt to the core. Just read the history books. But governing leadership, just like today, is causing chaos to people who profess to be followers of Jesus, not followers of a political party, not followers of a specific country. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Don't miss the point. Who is Paul talking about right here? So you're trying to figure out, which party is he talking about? Who's he talking about, the previous administration or this administration? I just want to know, Andy, where are you in all this stuff? I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're called to do. Paul here is most likely talking about a gentleman, I'm being kind, named Nero. He was the most powerful ruler in the ancient world at this time. Suetonius said this about Nero. He showed neither discrimination nor moderation in putting to death whomever he pleased. You and I have never experienced that kind of ruler over government. Nero is the emperor who is said to have fiddled away while Rome burned. You see, in AD 64, a huge fire swept Rome. And according to a Roman historian, Tacitus, he said that Nero himself was behind the inferno. He burned the place so that people would be under his power and control. They would have to come to him for help. He was corrupt. And to keep the heat off himself, Tacitus explains that Nero then focused the attention on Christians as a scapegoat. Those aren't my words. That's what Tacitus said. He specifically says that the mockery that they endured for their faith was a major atrocity. They were covered with skins of beasts and, and they were torn by dogs. They perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired, end quote. Nero commanded most of the known world at the time. He was thoroughly pagan, morally bankrupt, all the same descriptions I just gave. Tyrannical, cruel, 
oppressive, murderous, killed his own mom for power. Unjust, sexually immoral, he was sadistic. He was corrupt to the core. No one embodied the very spirit of the Antichrist more than Nero. Yet Paul, to put this into perspective, calls for followers of Jesus to be obedient, to be prepared for every good work. Listen, the Apostle Paul naturally wanted to protect believers in their persecution. This was his transformation of the faith. He went from persecuting to preaching, persecuting Christians to preaching to them. But he recognized that the church cannot effectively fulfill its mission in a dark world if they're acting hateful like the culture around them. There's an evangelistic pursuit behind the book of Titus. For effective evangelism in the community, believers have to live life differently. It's an interesting concept. They have to actually follow Jesus' example, who was brutally killed and murdered and reviled by corrupt people. We follow that Jesus. Be submissive. He, he says, remind them. Nero's crazy. But we have to be submissive. Hupotasso is this word to submit. It means to arrange under or to follow. David Burke in his commentary puts it this way. Paul expected Christians to obey, quote, rulers and authorities, which represent both the office of government and the people who occupy them. His commands leave no room for anything short of complete submissive obedience, not merely respect, but full compliance to their laws and their directives, as stupid as they may be or as profound as they may be. He goes on to say, you need to be obedient to the magistrates. Since you have your own Bible or you're going to get your own Bible, I want to encourage you to go read Romans 13, where Paul says the same thing. Submit to the ruling authorities. Romans 13, 1, 2, and 3. He gives seven reasons. I'm going to give you the first three. Paul says, submit to the governing authorities. If you're a follower of Jesus, because... God is the one who puts them in that position. No ruler and no authoritative person is put in a government seat without God's sovereign initiative. God is sovereign. The world is not created and then he steps back and goes, oh wait, no, oh come on, I just hope it all works out. Because if he was doing that, he wouldn't be God and the scriptures completely teach that he is sovereign. Now we can't understand how man's free will and responsibility align with God's sovereignty, but they are both there. We're restricted by time, space, and matter, so we can't fully understand these things, but we also cannot throw out his sovereignty over man's responsibility. That's unbiblical. And, and his sovereignty doesn't eliminate man's responsibility. 
He says, look, God establishes the authorities in Romans 13. So if you disobey the authorities, you're disobeying God as a follower of Jesus Christ. And then the third thing, out of seven, you can go read it for yourself. He says, and when you do this, you receive condemnation upon yourself. You see, we have to be obedient, not for ourselves, and not just because it's right, but because we're on mission. He's making this very clear. To be ready to do every good work, not just to do nice things for people. It's because there's something greater that we want people to know. He's referring to, when he says to be ready for every good work, he's referring to a sincere, loving, earnest desire to serve others, especially in a hostile society with hope that they will believe. Are you living your life as a visual reminder of who God is and what he has done? Verse 2, speak evil to no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy to all people. Paraphrasing in the Greek language, he's saying, speak evil to no one. Don't be a brawler, but be gentle, showing meekness to all people. This phrase, speak evil to no one, talks about maligning others. Malign is, to render, is rendered from the Greek word blasphema, where we get our word blasphemy. It means to curse or slander or treat someone with contempt. Blasphemy is a manner of speech that disregards or disrespects the status of another person. This is normal in our culture. It's not right. Even the very least of humanity needs respect. Do you know why? Because in God's eyes, we're all equal. Least of humanity. Yeah, Jesus talks about he didn't come to help the healthy. He came to help the sick. Every person is created in the image of God and bears God's image. They deserve respect, not malignment. We need to avoid quarreling. The Greek term here literally means a non-fighter. Be honest, a little confession. I was hoping that the airline flight would be kind of a little fun, entertaining. You see the videos where people are like going at it on the airplane because of whatever. It was just normal. No quarreling. It's talking about a person who walks away from a quarrel. They simply decide not to fight. And most, if not all, fights are about things that do not matter, if we're going to be honest. But be gentle. This term combines the ideas of dignity and 
reasonableness, this word gentle. Aristotle used the word to denote, listen, an indulgence of consideration of another human's infirmities. Be gentle. They're in strife. It was Warren Wearsby who said, be careful because everybody has a backstory. Everybody has something going on. You don't. Oftentimes that's elevating emotion, sorrow, hurt, pain, anger. Be gentle. Be dignified and reasonable. Do not hold grudges. The actual word or understanding is sweet reasonableness, kind reasonableness. And show perfect courtesy to all people. This is interesting because the Greek culture prized consideration as a quality of refined leadership and a mark of strength. So Paul basically is drawing this secular idea and he's adding an ingredient that's imperative as a follower of Jesus Christ. This word courtesy embodies love, perfect love to all people. Our general demeanor needs to be humble and demonstrated by kind responses. Christians must offer dignity to all people. Everywhere, he says, regardless of their race, their skin color, their religion or belief, their status, their salary, their occupation, their education, their material status, their political agenda, kindness to all people. Bob Goff wrote a book called Everyone Always that embodies this whole principle. Love everyone always. Yeah, but Andy, you just don't know. He does, God does. Are you living your life as a visual reminder of who God is and what he has done. He gives these seven descriptions of our duty as a follower of Jesus Christ. And then he solidifies it by reminding us of our former disorder. And when he does this, he slips in this connecting conjunction, the Greek word gar, which is for or because. For. We ourselves were once foolish. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know what your former life was like. If you're not sure, you need to come back to the gospel. For we once ourselves were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, everything changed. We were foolish instead of sensible. We were disobedient instead of subject to rulers. 
We were deceived and enslaved rather than prepared for good deeds. We were hateful and hating rather than peaceable, gentle, and kind. Our culture is driven right now by hate. We as followers have to embody something completely different. There is no justification to hate somebody, but our culture says, since you hate, I get a hate. It's not God's directive. Could you imagine if that's what God did to us? Since you hated me, I'm gonna hate you back. Now, instead, what does he do? He extends grace and mercy. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Everything changes. Someone changed us, not something. Remember, Chris said last week, grace is a person. Jesus, grace appeared I'm going to ask it again. Are you living your life as a visual reminder of who God is and what he has done? This truth about God's grace should infect us as we affect others. In the grocery store, When our rights are infringed upon, we've surrendered our rights. Driving down the road, in church, at work, at home. Verse 4 through 7, most Greek um, experts in literature say that this is a long sentence arranged in stanza-like poetry. But what I want you to see is that it is tightly packed with the theological truth of the gospel in a nutshell. If you don't get anything else from the sermon, I hope you understand the truth of the gospel that is recorded right here in God's word. He saved us. You didn't save yourself. He did it and goes on to say, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, underline, circle that word. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, I'm gonna talk about what that is and what that means. Verse six, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. This detailed description of God's kindness and love nullifies, listen, any suggestion that believers deserve any credit for their salvation or for their moral character. They're motivated only by the kindness and love of God. God saves us, not because we are good, but because he is good, because of his mercy, not our righteousness. God is the one that rescues. This is the gospel. Every other religion is going to say, here are the things you have to do to get to God. The gospel in God's word and the center of Christianity is this is what God did to rescue you. 
It's not by your works. I quote this verse often, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you are saved through faith. It is not of your works. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast and say, oh, look what I did. Look what I did. I saved myself. I prayed the prayer. I believed. I went forward at Hume Lake. I was baptized. I saved myself. Those are all a response to God's saving work. He gets the credit. You have a responsibility to call upon the name of the Lord. You have a responsibility to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead. Those are your responsibility to react to his grace. His grace alone saves you. You don't save yourself. And true grace is never alone. It's followed by your actions, but your actions don't replace that grace. This is so absolutely imperative for the gospel. You do not earn your way in, and you cannot sin your way out. You do not earn your way in to God's grace. And you cannot by scripture, sin your way out. Grace is not a license or a credit card to sin. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saved now. I'm good. I can just live how I want. No, true grace is irresistible and it changes you. Some people, it changes like Paul right overnight from murdering to, from, from persecuting to preaching. Some are like Peter who struggled with affliction and other disciples who had uh, depression and other issues they had to work out. It may be a slow progression. You're born out. This is so important. I'll camp here. You're not born good and then earned your way out. You're born out. You're rescued. You're adopted. You're saved. You're brought in. John 10, go read it. In the Greek middle voice, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand, not even your own self. I call that scripture the grip of God. God rescues individuals permanently. I know there's chaos in this world. I know people are going to struggle with affliction and sin. We can't always judge the heart. We stand on the promises of God, especially when chaos and catastrophe strike. He uses two key words to drive home this point. Saves us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration in the gospel refers to rebirth or new life, new spiritual life. We're gonna learn about this from John chapter three and four after Easter, regeneration. Polygonesea is the word regeneration. It carries the idea of receiving a new life, being born again, born from above, spiritual rebirth. This is exactly what Jesus told the religious leader Nicodemus in John chapter three. Truly, truly, I say to you, you have to start all over. You have to be reborn. Regeneration occurs the moment a person believes. Renewing 
the Holy Spirit occurs progressively over time. Paul doesn't focus on our participation in that process. Instead, here, he focuses and he highlights God's grace and work through the person of the Holy Spirit in our lives. People cannot renew themselves any more than they can regenerate themselves. It's all God's work. God saves, God regenerates, God renews, God justifies. Believers respond. That is amazing grace. Are you living your life as a visual reminder of who God is and what he has done? He reminds us that we were delivered from debauchery, from selfishness, even domesticated debauchery and selfishness, where everything looks like we got it all together, but we know the sin and selfishness that drives us. We've been rescued from that. And then he reminds us of our desire as entrusted followers of Jesus. He uses the word devoted. Verse eight, the saying is trustworthy. And I want to insist, I want you to insist on these things. Don't take my word for it. It's trustworthy. Go search it out for yourself. I want to encourage you to invite your friends on Easter Sunday. One friend who maybe isn't following, but you would love to see them find and follow Jesus. I'm going to break down the historical truth and the science from many scientists on the resurrection of Jesus. It happened. It's a historical fact. This gospel that changes us from how we used to live to how we now live in a dark world because of what he did, not because of what we do, is trustworthy. And just like Titus is supposed to insist, I insist. I insist on these things so that those here today who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This is not behavior modification 101. This is being who God called you to be on mission. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. We're going to beat this drum and beat this drum. And as I close, I just want to say, there are three specific things you need to do if you want to put these scriptures into practice in your life. You need the all-encompassing truth of the Bible. You need sound biblical doctrine. You need to be in authentic fellowship and you need to be actively engaged in the world, not for any political agenda, but for God's mission in your life and for others, which will last for all eternity. This is receiving grace and mercy. Brothers and sisters, friends, family, wherever you're at on your spiritual journey, this is trustworthy. 
step into God's grace and mercy. Without it, you have nothing. Grace relates to your guilt. Mercy relates to your affliction. Grace relates to the state of your sin before a perfect and just God. Mercy relates to the condition of the sinner in his sin before that just God. Grace judicially forgives the offender of his wrongdoing and mercy compassionately helps him recover and be renewed and restored. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, selfishness, and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for every good work. Are you living your life as a visual reminder of who God is and what he has done for you personally. Father in heaven, may this be a truth in our lives here at Sun River Church that drives our heartbeat. It draws us together, it unifies us as your body, your hands and your feet in a lost world. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.